The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Fighting Through World War II, Episode 84, Canadian Lance Corporal David Johnson. More great unpublished history. It seems proper that some of the circumstances which I witnessed during World War II should be recorded. Those brave Canadians who did not return to their beloved Canada will have no testimony. The sergeant asked for volunteers to help lay tape to mark out lanes for the tanks where the engineers had swept for mines. I said, count me in. A limey convoy down the road had stopped and the men had taken to the ditches. It then moved up to me and an officer said, Corporal, we're going to set up in this field. I said, sir, they're shelling this road. And he replied he must set up his unit anyway. I remember Christmas Day on the Morrow River. We dug in and as usual I dug an extra deep slit trench. All night Christmas Eve we were shelled by German 88s. Hello again, and another exciting World War II welcome to the Fighting Through podcast. I'm Paul Chielson of Bill Cheel, whose World War II memoirs have been published by Pen and Sword in Fighting Through, from Dunkirk to Hamburg. The aim of this podcast is to give you the stories behind the story, and much more. You'll hear memoirs and interviews with veterans in all the countries and all the forces. I dare you to listen. And hot on the heels of episode 83, this is a shorter bonus episode, so not so much of it, but it's quality, not quantity, that matters, eh? Don Cairo from Canada has been in touch, full of beans about a memoir he stumbled across. As we traverse the world of World War II, we've now arrived in Canada, and Don has kindly sent me a memoir by Lance Corporal David Johnson of the Canadian Provost Corps. At the start of the war, he joined the Seaforth Highlanders of Canada, trained on tanks, sailed from Halifax to Greenock in Scotland and thence on to Europe. He lived a charmed life throughout the war, but by no means a safe one, and not unlike anyone who survived. He lost many friends in the Dieppe raid, and that's pretty much where his christening into battle began. That's Lance Corporal Johnson, coming up shortly. A few survey comments now from Dustin Fisher, and Dustin said in the survey, So far my favourite episode is 26, The Zilkin Letters. Dustin, yes, I agree, that's one of my favourites too, and I was re-listening to it just the other day and thought how much I enjoyed it. Of course, it's about two old boys reminiscing by letter, and I'm reading out some of the highlights from the letters from Fred Zilkin, thinking back to the War of the Green Howards. 
Dustin continues, I love the podcast episodes and how well they're put together. I sometimes feel as if I'm watching Band of Brothers UK edition. Good man, Dustin. It's funny, but um, that was never my intention, but it does seem to have evolved that way. I think we've all gradually got invested in the various characters who've taken on the roles of, of an epic cast in their own right. So if you listener are one of those people who've listened only to the later set of episodes, you're missing a treat in the earlier ones. Take a shifty at episode one and see what you think. Tim Renville from Canada has said, I'm enjoying yet another fighting through podcast episode and heard a reference to German submarines stealing ashore in the UK for fresh water. And I've attached a link of a little known occurrence over on this side of the pond, which you might find interesting. And uh, the link's in the show notes and the story's on Wikipedia. And here's just a, a summary of it. Weather Station Kurt, Wetter Funkgerät Land 26, I think that's 26, <laughs> was an automatic weather station erected by a German U-boat crew in northern Labrador in the Dominion of Newfoundland, Canada, in October 43. Installing the equipment for the station was the only known armed German military operation on land in North America during the Second World War. After the war, it was forgotten until its rediscovery in 1977. So what follows is about weather station Kurt, as we'll call it. In the Northern Hemisphere, weather systems in temperate climates predominantly move from west to east. This gave the Allies an important advantage. The Allied network of weather stations in North America, Greenland and Iceland allowed the Allies to make more accurate weather forecasts than the Germans. German meteorologists had weather reports sent by U-boats and weather ships operating in the North Atlantic. They also had reports from clandestine weather stations in remote parts of the Arctic and readings collected over the Atlantic by specially equipped weather aircraft. However, the ships and clandestine stations were easily captured by the Allies during the early part of the war. Data from aircraft was incomplete as they were limited in range and susceptible to Allied attack. Regular weather reporting by U-boats put them at risk as it broke radio silence, allowing the Allies to locate them and track their movements by radio triangulation. To gather more weather information, the Germans developed the Wetter Funkgerät Land, WFL, automatic weather station. The WFL would send weather readings every three hours during a two-minute transmission. The system could work for up to six months, depending on the number of battery canisters. On September the 18th, 1943, U-537, commanded by Captain Lieutenant Peter Schreuer, departed from Kiel, Germany, on her first combat patrol. She carried Kurt and a meteorologist, Dr. Kurt Sommermeyer, and his assistant, Walter Hildebrandt. En route, the U-boat was caught in a storm and a large breaker produced significant damage, including leaks in the hull and the loss of the submarine's quadruple anti-aircraft cannon, leaving it both unable to dive and defenceless against Allied aircraft. Some four weeks later, 
they arrived at Martin Bay at the northeastern tip of the Labrador Peninsula. Schreyer selected a site this far north as he believed this would minimise the risk of the station being discovered by Inuit people. Within an hour of dropping anchor, a scouting party had located a suitable site and soon after, Dr Sommermeyer, his assistant and ten sailors, disembarked to install the station. Armed lookouts were posted on nearby high ground and other crew members set to repair the submarine's storm damage. For concealment, the station was camouflaged. Empty American cigarette packets were left around the site to deceive any Allied personnel that chanced upon it. One canister was marked and misspelt Canadian Meteor Service in order to simulate Canadian Weather Service as a German attempt to avoid suspicion if discovered. No such agency existed in Canada. The crew worked through the night to install Kurt and repair their U-boat. They finished just 28 hours after dropping anchor and after confirming the station was working, U-537 departed. The weather station functioned for only a month before it permanently failed under mysterious circumstances, possibly because its radio transmissions were jammed. The U-boat undertook a combat patrol in the area of the Grand Banks of Newfoundland, during which she survived three attacks by Canadian aircraft, but sank no ships. The submarine reached port at Lorient, France, on December the 8th, after 70 days at sea. She was sunk with all hands 11 months later, on November the 11th, 44, by the submarine USS Flounder, near the Dutch East Indies. The station was forgotten until 1977 when Peter Johnson, a geomorphologist working on an unrelated project, stumbled upon the German weather station. He suspected it was a Canadian military installation and named it Martin Bay 7. Around the same time, retired Siemens engineer Frank Selinger who was writing a history of the company, went through Sommermeyer's papers and learned of the station's existence. He contacted Canadian Department of National Defence historian W.A.B. Douglas, who went to the site with a team in 1981 and found the station still there, although the canisters had been opened and components strewn about the site. Weather Station Kurt was brought to Ottawa and is now on display at the Canadian War Museum. What a lovely story that was. Thanks to Wikipedia, there's a link to the full episode in the show notes. A quick website survey shout out now for Steve Tempio from the USA whose favourite episodes are Dunkirk and D-Day. Thanks Steve. Bit of war stuff? Um... Now restrictions have been lifted, I've decided to go back to the gym and they put a new machine in since I was there last, so uh, I've used it for an hour, but felt really sick. It does everything though. Kit Kats, Hershey bars, Snickers, crisps. (laughs) Sorry, that wasn't really war stuff, but this one is. It's about Maisie. Um, Philip Benison followed up on something in an earlier episode and I think Philip's note pretty much sums up anything you might like to know about this mystery, which isn't actually a mystery. You asked about the Maisie battery in Grand Combe Maisie, about one kilometre inland from the Pointe de Hoc. I last visited it in 
2019. The battery was completely buried shortly after the war and rediscovered and partly unearthed and restored by expat Gary Stern and was open to the public in 2006. It's run as a father and son operated battlefield site. The Stern family is still unearthing more of it from time to time. Originally, Maisie comprised two kilometres of trenches and three batteries targeting Omaha Beach, causing grievous casualties on D-Day. I've visited Normandy numerous times and regard Maisie as a must-see on any Normandy battlefield tour. Take note, budding Normandy tourists, uh, another reminder that I've posted some helpful hints on the website fightingthroughpodcast.co.uk and if you scroll right down to the bottom of the homepage you'll find a, a variety of useful links including research tips, my dad's souvenirs and a France visit ideas page to which I'll now add the Maisie battery. Now for another spooky or what segment. This is about a great coat. Apologies for lateness from me to Lee Lidbury UK. This has been wallowing in my pending folder for far too long. I purchased nearly the whole uniform belonging to a certain Captain LWR Deacon. The grouping comprised of five hats his khaki drill and normal service dress uniform and his battle dress uniform. The only thing missing was a great coat. How good is that? Having been on my wish list to find any great coat to match the set, three years after my original purchase, I found a captain's great coat to the Royal Army Service Corps at a local car boot sale. Rather strangely, when I got it home, I found Major LWR Deacon faintly written on the liner. Weird or what? And that's Lee Lidbury, UK. Wow, Lee, thank you for that. What a great find. And the bloke had been promoted to Major. Lee, thanks so much, and if you hear this, drop me a line if you have any sort of update on this soldier. I'd love to know if you've done any research on him. After all that suspenseful build-up, <laughs> I was so tempted to say it said M&S or Walmart on the lining, but I think that might have dispelled the genuine mystique about the whole thing. And after a record of only 14 minutes on this special bonus episode, we're now turning to the main event. Dan Cairo's written in. Hi there, Paul. I'm a fan of the podcast in Nanaimo, Canada. I've just finished episode 80 about the Dutch hunger winter. I loved all the episodes, especially ones with Wilf Shaw and your dad's account of the beaches at Dunkirk. After listening to episode one, I just had to re-watch Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk movie as soon as I got home. A while back, I was painting this lovely elderly lady, Sandra Dolls, home. She asked where my accent was from. I say Zim. She says, well, far from home. 
I ask if she's ever been to Africa. She says, no, I've never left the country. I then asked where she was born. She replies, 1939. I instantly asked if she remembered anything about World War Two. She says, my dad was in the war from start to end. How good is that, I said to myself. She gave me my own photocopy of her dad's memoir. Cheesy grin face. It's about Lance Corporal David Johnson of the Canadian Provost Corps. Just wow. How do I share all this with you? We've got the Lord's work to do, mate. Dan Cairo, Nanaimo, Canada. And if you need any painting done on the island of Nanaimo, Don is your man with pride painting. And that's my plug, not Don's. There's a link in the show notes. So if you want your painting done with a plum, get on the phone and ring Desperate Don. <laughs> that's also definitely my plug. <laughs> OK, get serious now. This is Lance Corporal David Johnson's memoir of the Canadian Provost Corps. And he's called it... I remember. Now that I'm approaching my 71st birthday, it seems proper that some of the circumstances which I witnessed during the World War of 1939-45 should be recorded. First, that Canadians may not forget that generation of young men who voluntarily left homes and jobs and loved ones, that they might face the threat of Hitler's fascist hordes already on the march over Europe. Soon memories will fade, and we who are left will be as pieces of driftwood upon the shores of time. Those brave Canadians who did not return to their beloved Canada will have no testimony. I make haste to point out that I escaped being wounded. I never merited any decoration or special mention, and thus feel free to relate the following without any sense of having done anything noble. I was just there. I am glad I came back, and I give thanks to God in preserving me through it all. Shortly after Hitler marched into Poland, Canada declared war on 10th of September 1939. Good boys, Canadians. After some heart-searching, I remember leaving the British Columbia Police where I was employed as a special constable and advising my wife that she and the two children would be looked after by the government while I went to war. There were no recruiting offices opened in Vancouver, so I found myself in the Vancouver Sun newspaper office where our picture, 30 of us, was taken for publication. Not long after... At the Burrard Street Armouries, I was examined and rejected on account of having asthma. With some medication and being otherwise healthy, I was examined again in Vancouver, and on June the 24th, 1940, so not long after the Dunkirk evacuation, I became a member of the Seaforth Highlanders of Canada. Next came the train ride to Calgary and Curry Barracks, where for nine months... We underwent infantry training. Then came a call for reinforcements for the Calgary tanks, and many of us responded. Another train trip took us to Camp Borden, where we trained on two old, obsolete World War I tanks. Then embarkation leave, and another train ride to Halifax, to board the French liner Louis Pasteur, 
It seemed as though there was one long mess line. It started for breakfast in the morning and was continuous until the evening meal. Down three decks in the bowels of the ship and assigned to hammocks in stifling heat as one tried to sleep, there came the dull thumps again and again of depth charges being lobbed at the jerry subs. Several of us obtained permission to sleep on deck if we did not light up. I personally felt I would stand a better chance if a torpedo hit us than being down three decks. In the morning, we could see the corvettes and a destroyer close by, and further on the horizon, American warships, which ju just happened to be going the same way as our convoy. Of course, at this point, the Americans, I think they weren't in the war and they were supposedly playing a neutral role, but, but they were helping behind the scenes. At last we landed in Greenock, Scotland, and thousands of troops disembarked and thence by train to southern England. Then followed the monotony of training and more training on Salisbury Plains, broken by a very rare leave to London for five days. At night we'd lift the blacked-out window curtains and look at the flashing of the ACAC guns as they fired away at German bombers. Sometimes we took the tube to our destination and picked our way between the rows and rows of sleeping civilians who bedded down with their children in the subway tunnels, night after night, while London blazed and burned. Back with our outfit while on guard duty, there came the endless drone of thousand bomber raids being sent out over the channel to bomb Germany. On the second leave I'd had for five days, upon returning I found our unit had moved, and getting my bike I went to Portsmouth with several of Number 2 Provost Company, as we were told we'd be going to Dieppe. Half of Number 2 Field Provost had already gone over, and many of my friends never returned. I spent all day in the rain and cold, directing traffic to the port, and then we were told the raid had failed and we'd not be going over. One of my friend's daughter, a Polish-Canadian, was found dead, I was told later, with several Germans piled up in front of him. The secrecy had been so great that I was allowed to go and leave as a normal routine privilege, so missed the slaughter at Dieppe. Listen, I've written quite as to whether or not there's more explanation about Doda's death, but I can only come to the conclusion that if he was dead, but with several Germans piled up in front of him, I can only think uh, he's killed them, and eventually one of them's managed to kill him. How sad. Well done, Doda. Our unit soon found out that the Seaforth Highlanders of Canada had gone into Sicily and we very much wanted to get into the action, so we volunteered to rejoin the infantry. Finally, we were allowed to go, but on condition we would be sent as movement control to 1st Canadian Division No. 1, Royal Canadian Mounted Police Company. In the days that followed, we were sent to Aldershot and issued with Norton motorcycles to replace our Harley-Davidsons. Later came a train ride and embarkation on an old Dutch ship, the Volendam. Blacked out, we approached Gibraltar 
and across the waters we could see the lights twinkling across the Straits of Gibraltar, possibly Tangiers in North Africa. I remember well the slow trip across the Mediterranean in convoy, the heat and the very poor food on the mess deck, and finally our arrival at the port of Philippeville in North Africa. Our Tommy guns were too hot from the sun to touch with the bare hand. The Arab urchins crowded around, trying to buy anything for sale, a broken watch, an army knife, etc., and finally we were transported to camp. We drove past mountains of cases of canned goods and supplies stocked by the American forces. A week later we had a day's leave and several of us took our bikes and spent the day in Constantine, which I recall as an amazing French city with roads carved into the sides of a mountain with a deep ravine. Camels wended their way in caravans with Arab men escorting women clothed in their traditional black flowing robes and veiled faces, but with their bare ankles displaying silver rings and jewels. Then came our time to move out from Philippeville after a week's stay, and we drove our bikes over shell-pocked roads to Bizerte, where we boarded a landing craft tank together with other troops and started for Italy. An incident stands out in my memory. As we embarked, we passed some cases of canned goods, and somehow the boards of the cases came loose. I filled my saddlebags with several cans of loot and decided to find out later what I'd liberated. On our way across the operations centre, troops called on our provost section to search the troop kit bags to find where the liberated cans of food had gone. I diligently went about the task in a friendly manner and confessed failure. The soldiers knew well that we'd acquired the cans ourselves, but kept quiet. At last we landed in Italy at Taranto and drove by bike to near the front at Campo Basso. Later we billeted in a town called Castel Pignano. Some Canadian soldiers had been ambushed near the bridge the night before, and it happened I was picked to stand guard the next night all alone with my tommy gun cocked and my back against a cement abutment as I listened for the slightest sound. Not far from Castel Pignano, the jerrys were lobbing in the odd boxcar shell from a huge railway-mounted gun, and foolishly I went with some of my pals to see the anti-tank unit dug in on the hill which was being shelled. A year later, had it been so, I would have gone off in the other direction if I didn't need to be there. Some hasty peas, a Canadian regiment, got drunk one night and fired their rifles for a bit. We were supposed to go out and calm them down, but decided to let them alone. I spent the night on the floor as bullets whizzed around. In the morning, some came over to apologise, which was unnecessary. We were all anxious to get into action now that we were there. Our company moved to Casa Calenda on a mountain top where we stayed for a month or so. Then one day we got orders to escort our division to the town of Temoli on the Adriatic. It was a cold, wet ride and I was frozen to my bike when we arrived. The Indian division had a huge bonfire going and some of us thawed out in the intense heat. 
The mobile showers in Temoli were a treat, and while inside getting my first shower in months, I heard some shelling and shrapnel fall on the roof. One of our corporals, who'd taken down his stripes in order to come with us from England, had been on the road outside and got it. He was our first casualty, and we missed him. Our next task was to move up to the Sangro and escort troops over the swollen river. It had rained for days and the Bailey Bridge had washed out. We never did any escorting, but the engineers got the bridge going again and we went over. Some signals drove into a nearby field and got their truck blown up on a mine. All we saw was a cloud of black smoke. I remember Christmas Day on the Morrow River. We dug in, and as usual, I dug an extra deep slit trench. All night Christmas Eve we were shelled by German 88s. There was a constant booming as though a drum had been struck, and then the whine of the shell. In the morning, I noticed all the olive trees around us had their bark stripped away by shrapnel, but we'd suffered no losses except some sleep. A young Canadian was brought to us. He was dead and had had his throat cut with a shell fragment. Around his neck on his dog tag was the Star of David. This Jewish boy was buried in my slit trench wrapped in an army blanket. The chaplain said a few words and that was all. Before he was buried, his pal asked the chaplain if he could take his new boots which the Jewish lad had promised him. He got the nod and took the boots of his friend before we covered him over. Jerry Plains, the 109s, strafed us continually, dropping anti-personnel bombs, where we sat waiting to move up over the morrow. My school chum from high school days in North Vancouver, Dave Moon, had just joined our section, E section, number one RCMP company, and I was glad to meet him. We arranged to have a game of chess on his pocket-sized board he carried in his pocket. Dave was detailed to get traffic over a bridge just south of Ortona, and a shell fragment got him in the lung, I was told. He died a few days later. I was then detailed to take over the bridge, and felt not the least bit happy about it. Underneath lay the bodies of two Italians caught by shell fire, and their legs were severed and piled alongside them. Some very brave soldiers, infantry of a unit I shall not identify, came along and looked at them as they passed. They then said, Corp, would you mind if we search them? I said, go ahead. They came up with a handful of lira notes, and wiping the flesh off them, they took the loot and went forward to the front. It was towards late afternoon that Wally Williams, our B-section sergeant, drove up with our 16-man section and said, Dave, when it gets dark, come into Ortana and find us. We'll get a house somewhere. The Jerrys began shelling again about an hour later, but not near the bridge. Some time passed, and then Wally came back with a few men on their bikes and with our section truck. The house they'd taken had been hit and half our fellows killed. Later, I recovered my kit bag from the truck, and all was like puffed wheat where the shrapnel had torn into it. 
It was not long after that we again left company headquarters and made our way to the south side of Ortona, where the Seaforth Highlanders were attempting to dislodge an 88-gun on the railway tracks inside the railway tunnel. Streams of civilians came back towards us, and I remember one child being piggybacked on the back of a man. She'd lost her foot. Somehow, an AMGOT, Allied Military Government, truck, drove up loaded with green moulded bread, which was eagerly clutched by the hungry civilians. Men grabbed loaves away from women, and I brought my tommy gun up and forced them to hand them back. They then got into the truck and were driven away. Frankly, my thoughts were that I was glad I'd not remained in the infantry. The Seaforths fought hand-to-hand in Ortona. Had I remained in the Calgary tanks, I can look back and see that I would not have survived. I met one of my Calgary tank friends in Tamale before we moved up. This formerly fresh young farmer boy was now an old man. Nearly all the tanks had been wiped out, and I found we had little to say to each other. The action he'd seen had aged him beyond measure. I felt glad that not by choice, but by trying to get into action, I had not remained with the Calgary tanks. I'd transferred away from certain death, though I'd not realised it. In Puerto Rico, we call ourselves Boricua. We are proud, passionate and full of life. On our island, adventure finds you. Strangers aren't strangers for long. The size of the audience doesn't change the beauty of the music. And we celebrate every last ray of sun. Live Boricua. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. It was in January 1944 we finally moved into some caves north of Ortana. There was a horseshoe-shaped valley and the road was filled with telemines which would be set off under the compacting weight of vehicles. The engineers had done a good job under fire. They worked under small arms fire while clearing away most of the mines. The S-mines were a bother. They were planted in the verges, the roadside ditch, and the engineers swept the verges and placed the sign Verges Swept on the roadside with the maple leaf. The Germans had somehow duplicated our signs as they retreated. We then had to look for the sign to bear a black spot to be sure it was ours. We spent weeks above Ortona with Tack Brigade just over the hill, where the Jerrys were about 2,000 yards away. Canadian mortar teams would set up buyers and fire away, and then pack up and leave for healthy locations. Only a short time later, we would get shelled, sometimes with airbursts from which a slit trench gave little cover. I recall Lance Corporal Kaznuik was killed some time later and we'd shared a cave together. 
Army photographers could not get past us because of the shelling, so while they waited for it to stop, they asked Krosnewick and me to pose for a picture of the two of us having a drink of tea. It was the most nervous cup of tea I ever pretended to drink. Listener, there's a photograph in the show notes of Lance Corporal David Johnson and Lance Corporal Kaznewick, who was later killed. One night, the Limey 5.5 set up in the valley about 500 yards behind our caves. I'd been sleeping in a little tent alongside the road in front of the caves, which were stuffy. I remember each morning my pals would look over and say, Hey, Johnson! and good-humouredly asked if I was alive. The nights I remember, when two of us would be on guard, and for one hour each stood guard while the other slept. Each sound seemed to be a jerry paratrooper, and Tommy gun in hand, I'd wait to be ready to challenge with a password which was changed each night. Sometimes beaver, sometimes maple leaf, etc., this password was for the infantry and all at the front in that location. Finally, we got word we were moving back and the 5th Canadian Division was relieving us. They came up and I helped escort their vehicles over the bridges. I warned a lieutenant to space the vehicles out as we were getting shelled. He replied he'd ordered the men to do so, but they wouldn't keep to it. A few days later, we were back at the front above Ortona as the 5th Division had to withdraw for regrouping. They'd not been prepared for what they met. Later, they came back and we went south and over to the west side of Italy and escorted our 1st Canadian Division up the Liri Valley. Then came our first leave. We had five days rest in Rome and stayed quite a bit at the Beaver Club. I remember how some children set off a firecracker in the street and three of us jumped to get under a truck for protection. Before leaving this part of my memories, I'd like to mention what happened to the cans of food I'd acquired on the dock before we started for Italy on the LTC. We had always been hungry since arriving in England and now in Italy the steady diet was M&V, canned meat and veg, and hard tack. We did have ample issues of bully beef and tried to find ways of eating it. Fried, it was greasy. Eaten out of the can day after day, it became revolting. <laughs> oh, what a surprise when I opened one of the cans and found it contained canned chicken. Several of my friends and I shared this feast, which was undoubtedly issue for American troops. Listener, for those of you who've forgotten or never heard the late veteran Wolf Shaw's recipes for bully beef, here's a short clip I want to share with you from episode 28. What food do you recall eating most in the army. often? Yeah, in the army. I remember we got these tins of uh, bacon that were sent, you know, sealed in, in right. tins, really great lumps of bacon. And then bully beef, of course. And what do you tend to eat? Do you have? We, we got so much bloody bully beef, bully beef for everything. Yeah. Do you eat it? Used to try and disguise it with <laughs> bully beef buttered, bully beef stew. <laughs> 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 oh dear! 
do you eat bully beef now? Is that is it corned beef really? That, <laughs> I remember oh with ginger rights, where was it? I forget where we were, I think we were up in Tunisia. And we're eating out of a mesting and all at once ginger pulls this out of his mesting and it was it was a bloody centipede, you know. Oh god. <laughs> yeah. That's that's not that's quite good, really, because if everybody wanted a leg, there'd be plenty, <laughs> plenty to go around. Ah. <laughs> oh, thank you, Wolf. What I particularly found funny about that clip, apart from ob the obvious with Wolf, was uh, how I just couldn't seem to get a word in edgeways with him. But um, as always with these veterans, if, if they're speaking, I defer to them and keep my mouth shut if I can. If anybody wants to catch up on Wolf's exploits, there is a category to Wolf all for himself, so, so click on episodes on the menu and you'll find all the categories including Wolf. This is on my homepage, fightingthroughpodcast.co.uk, where of course you'll find all the photographs and the full transcript of the show. Back to David's memoir. I would like to mention how, when at Ortona, I was detailed to go to a crossroads at Lanciano, just inland. Taking my bike over a mud-covered road, I arrived with instructions not to allow any troops or vehicles down a road which was under very heavy shellfire. A dead mule, which was rotting, was the well-known signpost identifying this crossroads. Well, a short time later, a convoy came up to me and I stopped it. The lieutenant in charge told me to step aside as he had to get up front. I refused and told him he couldn't pass on orders from divisional headquarters. Just then a voice sounded out loudly, Lieutenant, you've heard the corporal do what he says. He's carrying out my orders. The convoy turned back down another road and I looked to see a jeep and in it was, I believe, his name was Burns, Brigadier Burns. The rest of the day I felt quite important for a change. We left Rome and started north. Our maps were marked with our route and destination, which was Lake Tresamine, south of Rimini. I was now with 5th Division Provost Company, as our section truck driver had failed to chlorinate the water, and I was sent to hospital with severe vomiting, diarrhoea and fever. It meant a week in hospital, a week of convalescence, and then assignment from the holding unit to a new outfit. I remember a young man sleeping with us in a very large tent, shooting himself. I awoke in the morning to hear he'd died. Another man in the tent was frantic when he heard he was being assigned to 5th Division. I was told I was assigned to Corps, the away back unit of supply which supports the fighting divisions. The sergeant major agreed to switches, and the young man stayed at Corps, and I was assigned to join 5th Div, Provost. I remember while in hospital that a nurse came by and cut my toenails. The number 10 hospital was close to the front and had been shelled a few times. I felt very embarrassed and protested I could cut my own. But she replied, you fellows are fighting for us. It's the least we can do for you. I'd not realised that it had been months since I'd cut my toenails or had had time to think of doing so. I remember the mepocrine to ward off malaria and the order to wear long KD khaki drill when the sun went down. Then 
there was the mosquito nets which we carried in our saddlebags along with the mess tins and an extra clip for my tommy gun. Our next encounter with the fighting was on the Urso River near San Marino. This was south of Rimini. I was new to the section and when we were all together the section sergeant asked for volunteers to help lay tape to mark out lanes for the tanks where the engineers had swept. I never forgot the maxim not to volunteer but being new to the outfit I said count me in. <laughs> there were wide grins of approval. I was then told that they were just trying me out and that we were going to find a house for our section. Well, we spotted a house without a roof. Very few had roofs near the front. At the gate was a cart and being battle-wise we didn't move it in case it was booby-trapped to blow up. Inside the house, which offered some shelter, we stepped cautiously and examined everything. A wine barrel on the lower floor had a wire running from it. We contacted the signals who were nearby and warned them, saying that we would look for another place. Well, we later heard that a signalman ran a wire from the barrel and took shelter in a convenient slit trench. He'd pulled the wire and he died. The slit trench had blown up. I remember a crossroads to which I was assigned. All around it was shell-pocked. Not long after, a shell landed right in front of me and I fell back into the ditch. I felt my arms and searched to find where I'd been wounded. I was untouched. Then came the struggle. Was I to stay at the crossroads or move down the road a hundred feet or so? I was standing in a tangle of telephone wire. I was too ashamed to leave and too scared to stay. A limey convoy down the road had stopped and the men had taken to the ditches. It then moved up to me and an officer said, Corporal, we're going to set up in this field. I said, Sir, they're shelling this road. And he replied he must set up his recovery unit anyway. He pointed out a tall poplar tree and said the engineers should have taken that out, that they were using it for range finding to get to this crossroads. I was thankful that no more shelling occurred and soon after Captain Batty and his Batman drove up in a jeep and told me I could come back to section headquarters. He then belatedly mentioned how he'd been held down by shellfire the day before at the same place. I felt my wound dressing under my shoulder strap and thought that all through the 13 months in action I'd never had to use it. At night I remember a crossroads where we took several hours duty at a time directing ambulances to and from the front and sometimes the odd infantry patrol would ask directions very quietly. Once I heard crunch crunch across the road I got down in the ditch though there was no sign that it had been swept. At last I couldn't stand the fear any more and taking my tommy gun I charged across the road and prepared to fire on what I imagined was a German patrol. Oh, how glad I was to see a bullock or a cow which was munching on some fodder. How it survived without being butchered I shall never know. I could have kissed it. Back at section headquarters we always had a mouthful of rum ration to help us sleep an hour or so. In the day I saw such bravery from my vantage point on a crossroads, 
I could see Canadian engineers filling in a piece of road. They worked so hard shoveling, and then there was a boom boom and clouds of dust arose from shellfire just as they'd gotten clear. Time and again they ran for cover, and time and again they returned to repair the damage. I then knew I had not even seen action. I just happened to be there with many others, so many others. I returned, but many, so many young men did not. One day, Captain Batty called me in and said, Johnson, a compassionate leave has come through for you. I told him I'd applied for it in Canada years ago to settle my family affairs. I just couldn't take it now we were in action. He told me if he had the chance, he would take it. I asked for time and went to talk over it with my fellows in my section. They all urged me to take the leave and gave me their addresses, asking me to talk to their families when I got home. It later turned out I had no opportunity. I can't recall much of the return journey. I do remember boarding a ship at Naples and having my kit bag marked with an X, which I found out was because I was considered too thin to be sent straight home. I was not only well, but very fit. I couldn't understand it. Then came England, and to a camp or barracks where we reported on parade once a day. We were fed milkshakes and an abundance of food, though the war was not yet over and rationing was in force. I don't recall the trip across the Atlantic, but finally I arrived to be met in Vancouver by my mother and beloved sister Wendy. The BC police had a job waiting for me, but I was assigned to patrol Vancouver streets with zombies who declined to go over. I was also reduced to private with a subsequent loss of pay. This I was told until I had proved myself. <laughs> this was too much, and I asked to get back to my outfit, now in Holland. I got as far as Halifax, and was one day called in by a colonel. He asked two other men and myself where we thought we were going. We told him our story. He shouted at us in amazement. You fellows have done your bit. You're going back to Vancouver. A week later I was discharged. It was on June the 12th, 1945. A few days later, I was engaged by the BC police as a third-class constable. In conclusion... I'd like to mention several incidents which stand out in my memories. While being equipped at Avellino, when I was sent back sick because of the polluted water, I was put on night patrol of the town which was under curfew. No one was allowed to be on the streets or out of their houses after dark. Well, a buddy and I were patrolling when I heard a noise in a dark alley. I called out in Italian, Who's there? I then heard a click of metal as the cocking of a gun. Should I fire with my tommy gun or hold off? I didn't want to get it after having gone through so much at the front. I held off, and out of the shadows came a small eleven-year-old boy. Held in his hand was an army knife with the marlin spike opened. It turned out he was trying to get home and he called in Italian again and again, something like Pura, Pura, which I understand meant afraid. 
I had been saved the terrible memory of having killed a child who should not have been abroad during the curfew. I remember on the Ortana front, one of the new replacements to our section taking off when a shell hit a haystack. He turned up at divisional headquarters and was not charged with desertion, but was listed as battle fatigue. When ordered to the front, he shot himself in the foot and was charged with SIF, self-inflicted wound. We in our section didn't condemn the poor fellow. I recall how close our section had become. It was a comradeship closer than any family tie, yet strangely, when one got killed, we just carried on without any feeling of grief. I think we secretly thought, the next may be mine. There was no time to dwell on the loss of a pal. I remember Montgomery's 500-gun barrage from the Sangro River, or at least behind Ortana. We above Ortana in the caves heard the shells rustling and whistling overhead. We were in a sort of vacuum, with the Jerry 88s going well over towards the 25-pounders of our Canadian artillery. Our shells went over the hill, and presumably were landing where they were supposed to land. It was something to be ahead of such a barrage, and to have safe shelter in the caves. Through it all, I can truly say Canada may never know fully how her sons fought on that little publicised front. The mud, the fleas, the cold, and the summer heat. The hunger and the laughs. The comradeship and the loss of friends. I myself consider I was but a spectator. I was just there and never ever felt brave. I think my one thought was to somehow get through it all in one piece. On arriving in Canada, I recall it seemed as a strange country. All seemed at peace and the houses all had roofs on them. Soon memories fade and that other life we lived overseas seemed as a dream not often recalled and something irrelevant to the task of getting a job and starting over again. Lance Corporal David Johnson, Canada, June 1987 And that's the end of the memoir. What a great story that was. First of all, I'd like to say thanks to Don Cairo, who made the effort to scan this memoir and to get it to me. Well done, Don, for having the presence of mind to inquire of that lady if she knew much about the war. Of course, thank you so much to the lady herself, whose house you were painting, Sandra Dahl. Sandra, that was your father, and I'm sure you can be very proud of his service record and the fact that he made the effort to create such a precious historical treasure for his family. And of course, our grateful thanks go to David Johnson himself, both for his service and for his efforts in writing up those memoirs. A very fitting tribute to those comrades he sadly left behind and whom he said would otherwise have no testimony. Finally, one unsung hero who deserves to be in the credits, uh, Liz Nichols, Secretarial Services. She's the lady who's typed up this and many other manuscripts for me, including Fred Reynard's classic memoir of Dunkirk and Gallipoli. Um, if you need some typing done by remote connection, you can drop 
Liz a voice recording or a document for typing up and she'll get it back to you quicker than you can say bully beef. She lives in Norfolk, UK. I've been using Liz for several years now and that clearly says a lot for the quality of her service. There's a link to her in the show notes. That's Liz Nichols. Thank you so very much for your support and making the time to listen to me. And please write, like, rate, review or share the show, howsoever it pleases you. Above all, enjoy. And please do hear me next time. And a special thanks to the people who've been liking and sharing me the last few weeks. Um, And that includes an absolute stack of around 1,300 people, mainly Australians, who picked up on some of my Les Cook postings. I've never had anything like that number of likes before. And uh, a warm welcome to those of you who joined my Facebook page, uh, to which there's a link in the show notes. There's also a link in the show notes to the Australian Military History Facebook page, which helped me garner so many likes to the announcements of the previous episode. That's Australian military history. Of course, liking is not about bolstering my ego, although it helps. <laughs> it's signalling to the search police that something is worth reading, and if that leads more listeners to follow the Fighting Through Second World War podcast, then tally-ho to that. Next episode... I'm working on several ideas at the moment, but none is advanced enough to t- to actually tell you which one it's going to be. So it'll be a surprise. That's it. No PS this time, because that was a bonus episode and I haven't uh, prepared anything. So, see you next time. For now, I'm Paul Cheel saying, Toodle pip. <laughs>